Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. My name is Craig Thompson, and this is the open source field guide to help you understand everything you need to know about breaking into finance. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. On today's episode, we're going to be spending a lot more time talking about private equity and specifically how do private equity firms make money? And I don't just mean, you know, at a company level, like how does the LBO valuation work? We're going to talk a lot about that, but we're going to start there and we're going to build to even how does a private equity fund make money? And then how do private equity firms make money? If this is your first time checking into private equity space or you want a refresher, I'd highly recommend checking out episode 30, the private equity primer before diving further into this episode. So let's start with the private equity firm. The private equity firm is typically comprised of many private equity funds. And each fund is basically a separate legal entity that contracts with its investors to basically produce a return for them. And some examples of this, like KKR, where I used to work, they have like an America's you know fund, which is basically their flagship fund. And they've raised now, I think, 13 different America's focused private equity funds. But they also have a Europe strategy. So they've raised five different European private equity funds, some Asia private equity funds. And the idea is really within each strategy, a private equity firm is only deploying one fund at a time. So KKR waited to raise and close their 13th uh, you know, flagship fund. They waited until after you know, fund 12 was complete. And so you can tell the naming convention is basically they just add a number to each successive fund. And then it's just within the strategy. So right now, as we sit here, KKR is investing out of probably their 13th flagship fund, their fifth, I think, European fund, and then maybe their fourth Asia fund. Um, And then they have a couple of different other strategies as well. Within each fund, the private equity investors basically are earning fees in two ways. One is they just get a management fee. So basically... However, you know, large the fund is, maybe it's a billion dollar fund, they are earning a 2% management fee typically every year. So if you are a private equity fund, which might only have, you know, 25, you know, or 20 professionals there, that small of a company might still be running a billion dollar fund. And at 2% management fee per year, that means that out of this billion dollar fund, they're taking away $20 million per year just in management fees. They could lose all your money. They're still, you know, they're still, they're still getting those fees. And so if you think about like a five-year investment, you know, time period, that is a hundred million dollars off of this billion dollar fund just in management fees. And believe it or not, the management fee is actually a tiny, tiny fraction of the expected you know, profits and returns to the private equity fund of deploying one of these funds. The big creator of value for the PE firm is what's called carried interest or carry. And basically the way that carry works is after, you know, the private equity firm has deployed a particular fund, let's say that over the life of the fund, they doubled, you know, money on behalf of their investors. This private equity general partner basically gets 20% of the profits. So if you're doubling uh, the value of a billion dollar fund, 
that is $1 billion in profits, and they're collecting 20% of that. So that's $200 million in profitability for the firm. And by the way, if you're wondering, like, how realistic is it that you double the value of a fund? That actually is very standard. And more often than not, I think the average returns in private equity are actually a little bit better than that. It might be something like 2.2 or 2.3 times uh, net return for the fund. And that varies a little bit by cycle, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, as a general rule of thumb, I think like two to two and a half times. So doubling to, you know, doubling plus, you know, plus 50% uh, return on investors' money is a pretty, you know, standard and reasonable return to expect and what we see. So tons of money is getting thrown around here. And this, I hope, is a great jumping off point for understanding why private equity is such a lucrative career path, because these are small firms with a small number of professional investors that are just making a ton of money off of this strategy, because in a lot of ways, it's scalable. You know, if you can raise a billion dollar fund this year and you can deploy all that money, you can probably raise a $2 billion fund in you know five years or, or six years or whatever it is. And you might only need to hire maybe one or two more people. Like there isn't a big change in the number of professionals you need working there. It certainly doesn't map to like the doubling of a fund size. And so there actually is a lot of scale in these strategies if you are a good investor. And so there is just so much money in this space. And a reasonable question you might ask is like, wow, like these fees are crazy. So why would anyone pay these fees? And the answer is that, well, the returns are really good. Like the returns are kind of crazy. And so for as long as it is the case that in private markets, that there is, you know, the competitive dynamics are such that investors can generate these really, really strong returns that over the last 50 years are pretty consistently beating what you might see in public markets in the S&P 500. For as long as that's true, they're going to be able to take these pretty large fees and extract that value for themselves while still delivering to their investors, which are their limited partners, this kind of strong financial performance in, in average and in expectation. So that's a little bit about fee structure. Another question you might ask is like, well, well, how durable is that? Like, why isn't it the case that if you can make all this money in private equity, why isn't there this flood of folks running into private equity? And there are really a few answers for that. One is it's not right for everyone. If you are an individual investor, first off, you have to be an accredited investor and you have to meet that criterion for being an accredited investor to invest. And even if you are an accredited investor, then you still have to think about the illiquidity of this investment. If you give money to this strategy, you should not really expect to get your money back for at least five years, and sometimes it's longer. Like, And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't really sell your stake. It's just kind of stuck. And so there's a lot of those considerations that you have to be careful about. And you also have to be you know, doing a good job of due diligence on who is actually investing your money and who you're trusting to do that because there are certainly some folks who are just not good investors or not reputable investors. And it takes a certain level of evaluation skill to know who you're giving your money to. Private markets are definitely a lot closer to 
wild, wild west than public markets. And so part of this is, you know, the industry is growing a lot and it's growing to fill that demand and they're changing ways of creating value. But at the end of the day, private equity is still going to keep growing and it has a ton of room to grow. And really my biggest example that I can cite for, you know, why I know that is their excess returns in the space. And while the possibility of excess returns exists there, there is always going to be this rush of folks uh, to try to fill that gap and basically bridge to a point where at some point down the line, expected private equity returns should be higher than public equity returns because of the illiquidity. And there's also some extra riskiness there. I think on average, private equity firms have more debt and therefore the equity is riskier because there's more debt that's kind of senior to them and above them. And so the if the risk adjusted returns and the liquidity adjusted returns are going to be the same across markets, you should expect private equity to still be generating a little bit higher return, but maybe not quite as high as it has been historically. So I, I do expect this industry to continue to grow and for more and more large private companies to exist and they won't all be public. One other thing I want to talk about before we move on, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, is it's actually kind of legislatively interesting that the carried interest proportion, which we said is like the biggest component of how private equity investors make their money, is actually taxed differently than how you know ordinary income might be treated. So even the big banks, you know, all of these companies that are earning profits, those profits are reported and they pay kind of at the, the standard corporate tax rate for that. So, um, you know, 21% under the new tax regime, plus if there are any applicable state taxes, um, you know, and then sometimes there are always tax credits or adjustments to that. But generally speaking, they're paying that corporate tax rate. By contrast, private equity firms get to take advantage of what's called the carried interest loophole, which is basically to say that whatever returns that private equity firms are generating and whatever profits they're generating, these returns are treated not as profit, but as carried interest. And what that means is that if they've owned that individual investment for long enough, that that carried interest can get taxed at the long-term capital gains tax rate of 15% instead of the standard um, corporate income tax. So there is a tax advantage too to organizing in this way. Um, I will I will tell one quick story. There is a lawyer whose name I won't mention who works at a very large law firm who I heard speaking a couple of years ago who mentioned that in his opinion, the lobbying effort of the private equity industry in 2017 when Trump passed that corporate tax cut act he thought was the single best piece of lobbying in you know in history because basically what happened is politicians on and off have been focused on this carried interest loophole it's a little bit hard to describe to the average american not only what private equity is but what carried interest is and why it gets treated differently and it's certainly not in the news so much so there isn't so much political capital kind of moving folks to close this loophole, but there was some, like Elizabeth Warren was one who was kind of chiefly demanding this. And Trump actually got to claim that he closed the carried interest loophole, and some Democrats kind of claimed victory as this kind of bipartisan effort to close the private equity loophole. But really what they did 
is they only closed that loophole for investments held fewer than three years. And that's important because do you know what percentage of private equity investments are held for less than three years? Like none of them. Virtually none are held for less than three years. Five years is the standard, but it really is kind of, you know, three to seven years is the range. So by air quotes, closing the loophole for deals that are held for less than three years, it basically doesn't affect anybody. There are in some circumstances where the market's hot, you might have previously seen a private equity owner try to sell a deal after, you know, two years or two and a half years, where now you might see them sell it on, you know, three years plus a day um, to get that favorable tax treatment. But in effect, it allowed politicians to claim victory over the closing or the partially closing of this loophole, when in practice, it didn't really affect you know, how anybody in the space was actually performing their operation. So just, just a little side story there. I want to switch now to talk more about individual private equity investments. And when I say that, you know, a particular deal is returning two or two and a half times its money, a reasonable question you might ask is like, well, well, how does that work? And where are these sources of return actually coming from? Like what's going on in the structure of the deal or in the business that is leading to you know this this great return and principally a lot of this profit and a lot of this value comes from three places first is you know the good old-fashioned way it's the business doing well and the business continuing to grow so if you buy a company um, at you know whatever valuation and in private equity they typically talk about it as a multiple of EBITDA that you're acquiring this business for. So if you go out and you buy a company for call it 10 times their EBITDA over the previous 12 months, and then you hold it for five years and EBITDA grows and grows and grows during that time period, and you sell it for the same multiple that you bought it for. So if you bought it for 10 times and you sell it for 10 times and the EBITDA has grown, then you know your enterprise value at exit has grown. And so that is kind of the the good old fashioned main way that private equity firms are making money. Diving a little bit further deeper into that, you know, EBITDA can grow in all of the ways that you know it can for any company, which is to say, maybe revenue's growing. That's that's one great way to grow EBITDA. Another is margin expansion. So just thinking about having kind of a mental image of an income statement in your head, all of the factors that can grow EBITDA. Um, and all the line items at EBIT and above on the income statement are ways you can grow EBITDA. So growing revenue is great. Expanding your, your gross margin is another great opportunity. If you're pursuing cost-cutting measures, like you're reducing overhead, those are all ways to, to increase EBITDA. Um, so that is really one source of return. Another thing that these businesses can do is they might buy other businesses. Um, this is what I will call kind of like M&A as a value creation. M&A, of course, being mergers and acquisitions. And the goal here is that if the company is, you know, got bought for call it whatever, 10 times EBITDA, the multiples that these companies can attract are usually tied in part to their size. And so smaller companies traded a lower valuation multiple all else equal. There are a couple of reasons for this that we'll get into a little bit later, but 
What that means is a value creation opportunity is that private equity funds, while they're owning you know, each of these companies, they can have those companies go out and buy other smaller companies that are similar to them. They can pay maybe five times EBITDA for those smaller companies. But once you've globbed them together, now you have one company with a higher EBITDA base because EBITDA grow. And more often than not, you actually don't see multiple blending like a 10 times EBITDA company combining with a five times EBITDA company, if they're each the same size, they don't then become a seven and a half times EBITDA company. In all likelihood, it's going to stay a 10 times EBITDA company um, under most circumstances. And so you can literally create value through multiple arbitrage. You can buy businesses at a lower multiple glob them on to an existing business that trades at a higher multiple, sell the whole thing for that that same higher multiple. So you're not really making money in that case off of the old business, but you are making money off of the new business. Um, So that is another way that um, these private equity firms can generate a return. And a third way is while this company is owned by the private equity fund, that company is likely going to be profitable. And what do you do with those profits in the intervening period? Um, You might use them and and pay them back to the private equity fund. So you might be making money kind of every year at a steady progression as profits of this company are coming in. In practice, they try to lump them together, but that's kind of a structuring thing. Like, you know, fundamentally, that's really what's going on. Um, so business growth, um, whether that is, you know, organically in the business, like it's growing itself or inorganically, which is a reference to, you know, some sort of acquisition that you're globbing onto the business. Um, all of those growth drivers are all great and they're all ways of creating value. A second way that a, you know, a private equity fund can make money through ownership of a company is changing their ownership mix over time. And by that, I mean, a lot of times when private equity buys a company, they will borrow a lot of money on behalf of the company to try to finance the acquisition. And that debt actually gets paid down over the course of ownership so that even if you own a company as a private equity fund that sells for the same multiple that you bought it for, EBITDA doesn't changing and there's no free cash flow that they're paying you. There's no like dividends or anything that you're making in the meantime. You can still make money off that investment as long as the cash that the company is generating is enough to pay down debt over the ownership period so that when you're selling it, you might be selling it for the exact same enterprise value that you bought it for. But if there's less debt remaining when you sell it, then the debt you put on the business when you acquired it, then there's more equity left over for you. The private equity fund in all of these cases is the equity check writer and the equity owner. And so if enterprise value is the same, but your debt has been reduced, then all of that means that your equity value has increased. 
So those are the first two ways that a private equity fund typically makes money through owning a company. Uh, we talked about that company growing, whether organically or inorganically, and we talked about deleveraging over time. That's the term for having less debt uh, at the time that you sell the business than there was at the time that you bought the business. So basically you can own a bigger slice of the enterprise value pie um, when all is said and done. And then the last way that private equity firms can make money um, is one that's a little bit harder for them to control. So it's not you know, a conventional source that you go in expecting to happen, but is something that does happen sometimes is multiple expansion. So we talked about the third way is basically you can increase that multiple. And some of this is just you know a result of the simple math where the value at the end of the day that the private equity firm cares about for making money is the initial equity value and the final equity value. And this is assuming you know their, their percent ownership of the equity hasn't changed. Um, so beginning equity value, ending equity value. What is equity value comprised of? Well, it's enterprise value minus your net debt. Equity value equals enterprise value minus your net debt. So how can you increase your equity value? Well, one is you can reduce your net debt. We talked about that. The other is you can increase your enterprise value. And we already mentioned that enterprise value in this space is defined or usually like valued as a multiple of EBITDA. So enterprise value equals the uh, multiple of the business times the EBITDA base of the business. So we also already talked about growing your EBITDA is a great way to grow your enterprise value. But we didn't talk about the other component of that, which is can you grow your multiple? Like, is your multiple a fixed thing that can't change over time? And the answer is it actually can. I will say that this is not a focus in 99.9% .9 of cases. This isn't a growth driver that you would expect when you're acquiring a business. In fact, if you go back and listen to the Mike Hinckley episode on growth equity, a lot of times they're underwriting and expecting multiple contraction over time. And so for a lot of these growth investments, they really need EBITDA to be growing a lot to justify you know, a value which they're entering the business, given that they expect that multiple, that valuation multiple to come down. Um, so in most cases in private equity, it is a little bit of a hand-waved assumption that, you know, look, we don't know how the market will change or how it will turn. Um, so we are just going to assume that the exit multiple is the same as the entry multiple. And in a lot of cases, it's fine. But I really would encourage you to go back and listen to that, that interview with Mike Hinckley. I think that's episode 36, where we break down a little bit of what goes into those multiples and what goes into governing them and some ways to think about you know, whether you should structurally expect multiples to expand, contract, or stay the same when you're thinking about an investment and trying to project how it's going to perform. So those are the couple of levers that are driving private equity value. Um, I got some questions about this after the private equity primer, so just wanted to spend a little bit of time breaking that down. So I hope that's helpful in demystifying and breaking down a little bit of the sources of private equity returns. And these are really the fundamentals that are driving the core model in private equity, which is the LBO model or the leveraged buyout model. Um, for a lot of reasons, the LBO model actually is, in my opinion, the best valuation model. 
And you actually don't even need leverage to use an LBO model. Like it just really is a good framework for projecting returns in a business in part because that terminal value assumption, like at some point you're basically saying, you know, we're going to sell this thing for X multiple of this future EBITDA that we've projected. And it's impossible to know what that number is. It is an assumption that goes into your model, but relative to the DCF terminal value assumptions, that exit multiple is actually a lot easier to predict and a lot less volatile than like the terminal growth rate assumption that would go into your DCF and can have a really large impact on the value you'd project. Um, and so one of the reasons I really like building these LBO models is that it reduces the volatility or at least it reduces the extent to which your model relies on the most hand wavy assumptions. So something we're, we're going to go a lot more into detail on is actually how do you build these LBO models. And so that's something I think I'm going to put up on YouTube is I'll, I'll build a, like a quick LBO from scratch and walk through some of those terms. But at least for the podcast at a high level, I just wanted to take some time to talk a little bit about what the LBO model is, how private equity firms use it, and then depending on how things go, ways of evaluating like how did a private equity firm make money and also why private equity is growing so much and continues to be really lucrative, not only for investors, but also for the investment professionals that work at those firms. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases, and much, much more. We'll see you next time.